Well, I invite you to take your Bibles and turn to 1 Timothy chapter 3. We are looking at the last part of chapter 3 in three parts, uh, today being the second and Christmas Sunday being the very last part. Uh, But I want to speak to you on this subject today, the pillar and foundation of the truth. As we think about Christmas and the incarnation specifically, and then what our role is in the church to uh, set forth the truth, proclaim it, and then ultimately defend it as well. When you think about truth, the word for truth in the Old Testament means firmness, constancy, or duration. The word for truth in the New Testament means to unhide or literally hiding nothing. So truth is available for all to see with nothing hidden because God has made himself known to us, because he has proclaimed his truth to us through his creation, but ultimately through his son and then through the word that has been communicated to us. My favorite working definition of what truth is, is that truth is that which corresponds to reality. Now, this is really important because the age that we live in, uh, you'll hear the statements, live your truth or speak your truth. But that goes against the very nature of what truth is. Now, you can live as you please. You can speak what you want. But if truth is that which corresponds to reality, just because you live as you please or speak what you want doesn't mean that that changes reality. You can say that up is down, but it's still up. You can say that wrong is right, but it is still wrong. Truth is not just whatever works for you. It's not built on your experience. It's not determined by the majority. Truth is not determined by a congressional bill. Truth is truth. Truth is that which corresponds to reality. Paul wrote to Timothy on uh, the importance of God's household and how people are to conduct themselves in God's household. And we might, at first glance at that, think about uh, only how we are operating internally or how we are acting internally. But when he's referencing us as God's household, as the church, he's speaking also of how we live out our lives in the world. And there's so much practical information here on how the church is to be run, how the church is to live, who we are to be before a holy God. It is God's church and God's house because he's the architect, he's the builder, and he's the one who lives here. He's the one who dwells within us by his spirit. He's the one who is to be honored and followed by faith. Now look at 1 Timothy 3 and verse 14, and we'll read just two verses here. He says, I write these things to you, hoping to come to you soon. But if I should be delayed, I've written so that you will know how people ought to conduct themselves in God's household, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and foundation of the truth. The phrase, the pillar and foundation of the truth, is a key one. It means that the church holds forth the truth. It puts it on display so that all the world can see it. And in the contemporary church, 
That's what we have the responsibilities of doing, of holding firmly to the truth that's in our own lives and in the life of the church, of putting the truth on display so that the world can see it, communicating it, and then also supporting and defending the truth. So what I want to do in these few moments that we have together is I want us to consider this passage through the lens of the incarnation. The incarnation is the doctrine that God became flesh, that God took on a human nature and became a man in Jesus Christ so that we would say Jesus is 100% God, he's 100% man, and he is now eternally so. The perfect union of two natures without any lessening or mixing of either. So let's look specifically at Jesus as the fulfillment of truth in his incarnate life and think about how Jesus embodies the truth and what that means for us in the church as the pillar and the foundation of the truth. First of all, I want you to note that Jesus in the incarnation revealed the truth. He revealed the truth to us. John chapter 1 and verse 1 and 2 says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. When we think about Jesus, Jesus as the Word is the logos, meaning the expression of thought. Jesus as the logos is the total message about God to us. God has uh, revealed himself and manifested himself in uh, various times and in various ways, as Hebrews 1 tells us. But he has preeminently shown himself to the world through his son. John continues in John 1 and verse 14, and he says, The word became flesh and dwelt among us. We observed his glory, the glory as the one and only son from the father, full of grace and truth. The word became flesh, John tells us, is the idea that the Son of God who existed from eternity past, the Son of God who is the active agent in creation, became a living human being. The one who reigned over all the universe subjected himself to coming to this earth in the flesh. And God did not become man so that he could understand us. He fully understood us. God became man so that we could understand him. He came to die for us. And in dying for us, Jesus paid our debt and he set us free. When we come to this table in just a few moments, it's going to be a powerful reminder of a, for us of what Jesus has done for us, that he left the glory of heaven. He came to the mess of this earth in its fallen uh, mess that it existed in, and he entered into it, was tempted at every point as we are, yet he was without sin. He offered himself up for us to die in our place, to pay the debt that we owed. He was buried in a borrowed tomb, and he was raised on the third day. And when he was resurrected, the power of death was broken. This is the significance of the incarnation, that he dwelt among us. Now, it's interesting when John uses the language of he dwelt among us. It reminds us of the Old Testament tabernacle. And the Hebrews traveled around the desert, you'll remember, for some 40 years uh, on their way toward the promised land. And uh, the tabernacle was always set up in the camp, just as God had uh, designated it be 
at the center of the camp. And it was a visible reminder that God was among them. It was the place where God met with his people. It was the place where sacrifices were offered and prayers were lifted up and the priest interceded on behalf of the people. So they had this visible symbol of the presence of God among them, the the pillar of cloud and the pillar of fire. And when we connect this to what Jesus has done, we're reminded that when Jesus came to the earth, it was essentially the message that God was in the house, that God was present among the people, that God had come to save us, that God cares for us, that God helps us. So Jesus coming to the world was the ultimate message of hope. And John wrote, we observed his glory, meaning that that which was from the beginning, they actually saw with their own eyes. They heard with their own ears. They touched Jesus. They proclaimed the word of life. And he was the one who was full of grace, the unmerited favor of God, and fully truth. So what does it mean that Jesus is fully truth? It means that he's the embodiment of it. He, he revealed the truth because he's the embodiment of truth. John 1 and verse 17 says, for the law was given through Moses, but listen to this, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. And when Jesus proclaims himself in John 14 as the I am, he's proclaiming himself as the self-existent one. When he proclaims himself as the way, he's telling us that he's the only way to the Father. When he proclaims himself as the truth, he is the only truth. He's the source of truth. So think about it this way. Jesus is the signpost of truth. And in revealing truth, because he's the embodiment of it, he shows us the way to God. He shows us the way to be forgiven. He shows us the way to eternal life. And he's the only signpost that we need in order to be right with God. So the church, as the pillar and the foundation of the truth, proclaims that Jesus revealed the truth. That's what the incarnation is all about. But then secondly, Jesus taught the truth. Now, he taught the truth primarily by emphasizing the word of God through his teaching ministry. If you go back and do a little Bible study of the ministry of Jesus in the Gospels, Jesus is referred to as teacher 45 times in the New Testament. The title rabbi is used 14 times to refer to Jesus. They understood that this was one who was teaching something. And what he was teaching was the truth. He taught in rural areas. He taught in cities. It is accurate to say that when Jesus spoke, there were words of truth coming out of his mouth. Every time Jesus said something, He was speaking truth. And in his teaching ministry, he spoke in ways that were understandable. He related it to the people. He gave truths that were memorable and engaging. Even when the truths that he was presenting were not easy to receive or maybe not pleasant in their understanding, he wanted the people to comprehend what it was that he was teaching. 
And he used a variety of different things and different ways to be able to communicate that truth. He used proverbs and parables and similes and paradoxes and on and on we could go. But there was something different about Jesus as a teacher. There was something different about Jesus as a rabbi uh, from anyone else. He taught as one with authority. So in other words, he wasn't just uh, parroting words that someone else had said. He wasn't teaching something that another earthly teacher had taught him. He taught as one with authority because he was sent from God. He was God in the flesh. And he proclaimed that truth to people. And in teaching the truth, he also defended himself with the word of God against temptation. You remember the outset of the public ministry of Jesus? How he was led by the spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. That's specifically what the scripture says. Matthew chapter 4. And one of the greatest understatements in the scripture. uh, After 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And after he had been fasting for those days and nights, the devil approached him. And he presented him with three different temptations, which represented a temptation to the flesh, a temptation to the eyes, and a temptation to the pride of life. Each time that Jesus was tempted, he responded with an appeal to the word of God as his defense. Verse 4, he said, it is written... Matthew chapter 4, man must not live on bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. When the devil tried to twist the word of God in the second temptation, Jesus said in verse 7, it is also written, do not test the Lord your God. And then again in verse 10, for it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Now, each of these were allusions to the Old Testament and the book of Deuteronomy specifically. One commentator noted Jesus did not argue or justify his actions or discuss the matter with Satan. He quoted the word of God. Why is that? Because Jesus taught the truth and he defended himself with the truth. But even further, Jesus taught the truth by appealing to the word of God for our sanctification as well. And in what we refer to as the high priestly prayer of Jesus He prayed to God the Father in John 17 and verse 17, sanctify them by the truth. He's praying this to God the Father, sanctify them by the truth. And he said, your word is truth. That's how Jesus defined the word of God. And to be sanctified is to be set apart from the world and to be holy unto God. And we might translate this as set them apart and devote them by your word, God, Because your word is truth. Now, this is very practically applicable to our lives. We accept Jesus as God's word by faith, and we accept God's written word by faith. The Old Testament and the New Testament both affirm and support the words that we have in the Bible are, in fact, God's words. And if the words we have in the Bible are, in fact, God's words, then they are true. So now think very carefully about this. The Bible does not simply contain the truth. The Bible is the truth. And we would hold to what we refer to as the verbal 
plenary inspiration of Scripture. 2 Timothy 3.16 says, All Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, and for instruction in righteousness. Verbal means that every word in the Scripture is God-given. Every word that is in the Bible is there because God wanted it there. Plenary means that all parts of the Bible are divinely authoritative. We do not get to pick and choose. We don't get to say, well, Jesus said this, but Paul said that. Number one, it doesn't contradict. But number two, we don't get to pick and choose the parts that we like or the parts that we don't like. It's plenary inspiration. And inspiration means that God supernaturally guided the process so that everything that is in the word is from God. Psalmist put it this way in Psalm 12 and verse 6. The words of the Lord are flawless, like silver purified in a crucible, like gold refined seven times. There's a man by the name of J. Gresham Machen, who is known as the last of the Presbyterian theologians at Princeton, who thought of themselves as actually upholding the traditional teachings of the Scripture. He wrote a book in 1923. We're now almost a hundred years from the time he wrote this book. And it's entitled Christianity and Liberalism. And in it, he asserted that the Bible as both God's revelation and as inerrant is in fact essential to Christianity. Now what he did was he contrasted this view with the view of the religious liberals at the time, particularly Harry Emerson Fosdick. And Machen wrote this in chapter four. Remember, this is a hundred years ago. He said, modern liberalism, it has been observed so far, has lost sight of the two great suppositions of the Christian message, the living God and the fact of sin. The liberal doctrine of God and the liberal doctrine of man are both diametrically opposite to the Christian view. He goes on to write, But the divergence concerns not only the presuppositions of the message, but also the message itself. It is no wonder then that liberalism is totally different from Christianity. For the foundation is different. Christianity is founded upon the Bible. It bases upon the Bible, both both its thinking and its life. Liberalism, on the other hand, is founded upon the shifting emotions of sinful men. Church, we are seeing this lived out before us in our world. There's a battle currently that's playing out in the United Methodist Church. You may have followed along a little bit in the news. And at issue are scriptural views regarding life, marriage, and human sexuality. Some liberal congregations have blessed homosexual relationships. They have approved gay bishops. They have certified a gay-identified male who performs in drag as a candidate for ministry. This is so absurd, it's so far out there that I couldn't make it up if I tried. And just a week ago, 294 churches voted to leave the denomination in East Texas alone, representing nearly half of the churches in that region because they actually profess to believe the Scripture. Since 2019, more than 1,300 United Methodist congregations have already departed from the denomination, and it is accelerating. Here's what I stand before you today 
to say to you, and this is what I'll stand before you to say every single week, and that is what you believe about the Bible matters. It matters. And God tells us it matters in his word. And what concerns me greatly, and this is where it hits home a little bit, what concerns me greatly is that there are many people who profess to follow Jesus whose worldviews, if not their lives also, are absolutely inconsistent with God's word. You say, well, what is that evidenced by? What you support, what you affirm, what you like, what you celebrate. This should not be. If we cannot trust the word of God, listen to me very carefully. If we cannot trust the word of God then how could we have any confidence at all about the message of salvation? How can people think that they are smarter than God and determine that certain sections of the scripture are in fact not true, but say, oh, I want to believe the part about salvation because that helps me. But I don't really believe what that says about life or human sexuality or any number of other issues that we're dealing with today. If you can't believe one, you can't believe the other. But if you can believe one, you can believe both. And God's word is true. It is eternal and it is unchanging. Matthew 24 and verse 35, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. So the church as the pillar and foundation of the truth proclaims that Jesus taught the truth. But there's a third part of this as we think about the incarnation. Jesus sets us free through the truth. John 8 and verse 31 and 32 says, If you continue in my word, you really are my disciples. You will know the truth and the truth will set you free. Now, interestingly, John 8 in these two verses actually speak directly to what I just talked about. That if there are people who profess to have followed Christ but then go in a way that is completely opposite of what Jesus has said is true, then that is in contradiction to John 8 and verse 31, where Jesus said, if you, listen, if you continue in my word, you really are my disciples. He didn't say that if you continue in my word, then you can be my disciples. That's not what he said. He said, if you continue in my word, you really are my disciples. What Jesus is saying, this truth that he embodies, this truth that he taught, and now this truth that sets us free, if we continue in it, what that says is, that is affirmation to us that we belong to God. That's the proof. Whether or not we're persevering in what we said we believed to begin with. That's what Jesus says. So if we are Jesus' disciples, we will abide in his word. And there is no other way to live. When we dwell in his word and we continue in his word, that's the life that Jesus has called us to. And the result of abiding in the word is that you will know the truth. What does the truth do? The truth sets you free from sin. This is the primary focus of the words of Jesus. The truth about Jesus, the truth about yourself, the truth about the gospel will set you free. Jesus came proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. It's, it's good news because there's bad news. The bad news is that we were dead in our trespasses and our sins. The bad news is that we were on our way to a sinner's hell. The bad news is that we were separated from God for all of eternity 
eternity. But the good news is that grace and truth has come into this world. And his name is Jesus. And he came into the world to set us free. And he set us free from the ignorance of the things that, uh, of God that, that would cause us to be bound up in spiritual darkness. The things that we did not know. But now the riches of grace have been shown to us. And the truth will set you free to serve God. The church as the pillar and the foundation of the truth proclaims that Jesus sets us free through the truth. Now let's look again with a little bit more focus on this phrase, the church is the pillar and foundation of the truth. And then I'm going to close and we're going to come to our time of the table. The word pillar means column or support. So if you think about it literally, you see a pillar on a building. Like the, the old uh, First Baptist churches all throughout the South have these big pillars out front. And they're upholding the, the uh, front of the church. Uh, there are pillars in big government buildings that are, that are massive and grand. And, and what they're doing is they are upholding, they're supporting whatever it is that's above them. Foundation similarly means a prop or a support. Both words point to something that stabilizes, steadies, or holds. Now I want to make a distinction here because this is different from the reference to Christ as our foundation because the word that is used of Christ as our foundation means the initial or founding principles of an idea. So in other words, when it's referenced of, uh, as Christ the foundation, then he's the initial, he's the beginning, he's the foundation of the whole thing. But the way it's used here tells us something important. The church is not the source of truth. The church is not the origin of truth. God himself is the source of truth. God himself is the foundation of the truth. So that says to us as the church, if God is the source and God is the foundation, then what we're to do is we are to support, hold firmly to, and proclaim what God has made known. We're not the source of the truth. God is. But the church, meaning all believers collectively, all of us who follow Jesus, have the responsibilities to firmly hold to the truth, to put the truth on display so that the world can see it, and then to support and defend the truth. Now, I think all three of these are important because we got to know what we believe before we can communicate it to somebody else. But there's so many Christians that are uh, hiding their lamp under the bushel. They say they hold on to something and believe it, but friends, we're like the frog in the kettle today. The temperature is being progressively turned up. And a lot of people are just staying silent. We're not saying anything. We're not, we're not really sharing what we believe. And we're not sharing the good news as we should. This is a responsibility that we have, but it's also a great privilege that there's good news. That there's a God who can be known. And the reason he can be known is because he has made himself known to us. And as we live for him, we're willing to support and defend the truth. And I'm firmly convinced that what happens in many Christians' lives 
and in the life of the church is that they drift slowly away from what they know to be true and what they know to be the moorings of their life. And that pressure from culture is so strong to live your truth and speak your truth. Listen, you can live your truth and speak your truth and you can ride it all the way to a sinner's hell. It will not do you any good. But if you receive the truth that God has for you and you step into the light and you step into the grace and you embrace the truth, friends, that's where life is to be found. That's where eternity is to be secured because of what Jesus has done for you. Let's bow our heads together for a moment as we pray. And I'm going to ask our deacons who are serving in this service to go ahead and make their way to the front here. Uh, You can be seated if you like, but I want to pray for a moment as we prepare ourselves, and then we're going to serve the bread and the cup. Father, thank you today for your word. Thank you for Jesus, that we can celebrate the incarnation that uh, God became flesh and dwelt among us. God, thank you for not leaving us to ourselves. Thank you for drawing us to the hope that is found only in Christ. God, I pray that we would share that message of grace freely, that we would share that message of salvation freely. And as a result of our lives, as we continue in it, that many people in their lives will be changed because of the hope that we find in Jesus. God, I pray now that you would bless us in this time of uh, partaking of uh, your table, the bread and the cup. And I pray that you would prepare us and that even this would be a proclamation of the gospel today that there is a Savior who lived and died and who now lives again, and we await his return. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.